Welcome to Therapists Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real-life matters. Hi, welcome to Therapist Uncensored. I'm Patty Allwell. And I'm Sue Marriott. And I'm Ann Kelly. So the other day, I was watching something of my daughter, and I asked her, and I said, look, let's just go run out to this one store really quick. And she's like, Mom. And she starts talking to me. I can't do that. Look at the way I look. Look at my hair. And I'm thinking, okay, we're walking into a drugstore. And it got me thinking, how many parents have to sit and deal with the fact that their child thinks everyone's staring at them every minute of the day. They have a walking audience, right? Every parent of adolescents are nodding their head. Yes. You know, in some level, some shape, they think everyone's looking. So I thought it'd be a fun thing to talk about. And especially because there's been some new research out there so that, you know, we have to come from the NeuroNerd perspective on on NeuroNerds unite. (laughs) NeuroNerds unite. And I loved reading it. It was was out of uh, Harvard. And Leah Somerville just put a new finding out there that makes it all make more sense. So I thought, why wouldn't it be fun to bring this to our listeners? And Harvard is NeuroNerd Central. Isn't so, it? Oh, yes. <laughs> so they did a study that you might, I'm a, I'm a nerd for just a second. They did a study where they took kids from age eight all the way to adulthood to 22, 23, I think. And they put them in a functional MRI and they had them do a video. And while they were doing, uh, they were playing a video game is what they were. They told them, they believe it or not, they lied to these kids. They told them that they were being watched, that there was a video camera on them. And there was a same aged, same gendered peer watching them perform on this video. And what they did is, as they did, they were measuring different things in the adolescents, well, and adults and the children. They were going to measure basically the physiological response to it as well as brain imaging and the results were really fascinating well there was one thing you had mentioned before that you that which is part of the excitement of it which is that the video camera has these lights oh yes and so you can see when it's off and you can see when it's ready like charging ready to turn almost on. All, on on yeah so it's almost on you're about to be watched <laughs> and then it's green and you're being watched right so that that was that was the trigger that was uh, that they were watching the changes and they could arousal. see yeah that's a really really good point and and so you had the anticipation of being the anticipation of going into the store <laughs> you're not even doing it you can just imagine it's about to happen and they got to watch the physiological reactions and what was so fun about that is you could watch it from all through the developmental span of a growing individual and a growing brain and you know when we think about adolescence we know when our kids are changing we know when their voice goes deeper we know when their body changes and they get taller. Or they start smelling. They start really stinking. <laughs> you go, okay. And you can predict that. But we don't really think about what's going on specifically in the brain functions. And so, are y'all just riveted and dying to know what the answer is? I yes. totally what's love You want to know what happened. So, in the developmental span, those smack dab in the middle of the teenage years of the, I, I believe it was about 13 to, to 17, um, all, not only did they have a self-report of intense self-consciousness, they, they checked in on that, they had a heightened physiological reaction, especially during the anticipation part. 
as you mentioned, Sue. Huh. And then what was the most interesting is that they had a the the area of their brain, their medial prefrontal cortex, had peak activation more than the others. And they also noticed the connectivity between that part of the prefrontal cortex. And if y'all listen to our motivation habit uh, podcast, you remember us talking about the striatum. And the striatum is the area of the brain where that's really um, connected to motivation and goal-directed behaviors. And in these MRI results, for that age group, they saw a hot, much higher uh, connectivity between those two for that age period. Huh. So this will be a great relief to parents because here they've thought this was a character flaw in their kids. Exactly. That they were too vain or too something. But there's something in the brain in these areas that are late, exactly, that are later developed that makes them their brain activated in a way that they really do sense that everybody's looking at them. They really have that feeling of self-consciousness. And then they, then it connects to this behavior that says, oh my gosh, I've got to avoid it. I've got to do something about it. So this is all biologically appropriate. Absolutely. And you don't see it in the eight-year-old as much, and you don't see it in the 22-year-old. So the relief is it will go down. But, you know, one reason I wanted to talk about it is like, I don't know how you guys have experienced it, but when your kids are doing that, or I'm sure when we did it as a kid, our parents had the same feeling. Like you were mentioning, like, oh my God, how can you be so self-centered? How do you think really, you know, and our temptation, if we don't really have compassion and like, oh, wow, this is really literally happening to them. They're not making it up. So, so I have an example. Can I? Please. <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, go for it. Well, I remember as a child, um, maybe, I don't know how old I was actually, but I, it was cool at that time to get, um, waves put in your hair. And so, oh gosh, I remember that for some God awful reason. We all had to do that. I have a picture that I have to hide. Uh, I was get I got a permanent, that's what they called them back then. And basically (laughs) So just to give you all the visual, I have red hair and I suddenly had an afro, which I love. <laughs> I love afros, but on me, <laughs> I looked like, and I ran around with my dog all the time and I was always barefoot. And so I just immediately identified with little orphan Annie, that that's how I felt. And so I did not, I had this, for some reason, some of popular kids liked me. I was not a popular kid. I was a real outcast. And so now I'm really going to be an outcast. And um, I just remember crying and like I could not for the life of me straighten my hair and I would comb it. And it was, it was terrifying. And And all you can do is imagine at that point in time that everybody's noticing and everybody's watching you. Totally. And you know, one of the things I did was, you know how when a dog gets a bad haircut and they don't know it? Right. You know what I mean? And they think they're cute or whatever. And you're like, oh, God, that looks so bad on you. (laughs) You know, I snipped you too short or whatever it is. I really at the time thought, okay, I just need to pretend like I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, right. If I don't see it, they won't see it. If I don't see it, they won't see it. (laughs) And so I pretended the whole time that I didn't have a red permanent afro. That's hysterical. Yeah. and, And I don't know how your parents reacted to that, but I remember they didn't. They weren't aware. They didn't notice. <laughs> in our family, there were a lot of battles over what you wanted to wear, and if 
my parents decided you were going to wear something, you were going to wear it. And if you protested too strongly that it didn't look good or that people would laugh at you, it was sort of like you were shamed by my parents because they were like, who do you think you are? Nobody's paying attention to you. Mm -hmm. What? You think the entire uh -huh. world's watching you? Mm -hmm. So it was sort of intensified. Not only did you have that sort of typical adolescence, the world is watching me, but then when you, yes. when you cop to it, you were shamed for it. That's exactly why That's I right. thought it would be so great to bring it to the listeners. Because that idea of being shamed and hearing from your parents, you think everybody's judging you. And then you have your parents with that, that temptation unknowingly, because you want to teach your parents not to be, I mean, your children not to be so self-centered, but to hear, oh my God, I can't believe you think that you walk around, you know, it's so easy to shame and feel like, oh my God, I'm so self-centered. I'm so, why is that? And to have all this negative self-talk in your own head which adolescents don't need help with generally. No, they can come up with a lot of it on their own. Completely. And so, yeah, so the thought is be kind to your adolescents. And it's not to help them go, you know what, that's happening. We get it. We were there at one point, And at some point, this will be relieved and just help them normalize it. Well, and there was another article um, that you had mentioned that I also, that just to deepen this a little bit, to go a little further, since we have neuro nerds on the line here that added a whole other layer to it. Yeah, that was, if you look at the research on just the, the idea of being um, self-conscious, there's, there's different ways that they, we can be self-conscious. And, and, and obviously, you know, the adolescents aren't the only ones that can land in self-consciousness or gets, as we get older, we assume that you're going to grow out of it, but some people don't. Sometimes we have a difficulty with it. So they look at self-consciousness in two different ways. They look at it as the public self-consciousness, like we were speaking of, that means all eyes are watching me and the self-consciousness of what other people think of us. And then there's a private self-consciousness and the private self-consciousness is a preoccupation with who you are as a person, how you are, who you are. And those are, they're, they're related, but they're actually really distinct. So what we're saying here is that adolescents in general have that public one normal, normal, normal. And they should actually grow out of it. You should see your senior in high school start to kind of level off and kind of laugh at himself. But the research, Sue, that you're talking about that was fascinating is, of course, what we've always assumed that having peers, a healthy peer network is always the sort of answer to most things that we want for our children. And, and we're not going to dispel that. That's a great thing. But the the interesting thing is that the private rumination is the rumination or the private self-consciousness is the one that actually can make us struggle as adolescents yeah, and the adults. More problematic one. It's a more problematic to, to think everybody's watching you pretty normal. But if you're having an excessive amount um, of personal preoccupation of self-consciousness about who you are, how you think as a person, and that can get into rumination, that actually can create some struggles. Mm -hmm. And it's so associated with depression, depression, generalized anxiety disorder. Right. It can really kind of bring, or, or you see kids or adults, you withdraw because of that right. thinking of worthiness, things like that. So one would think having a good friend as an adolescent could help you not do that. And the interesting outcome of uh, a couple of studies that I went through that that that's not always true, actually, that those peers, those adolescents who report having a high peer, um, positive peer network that had a tendency to uh, be sort of uh, 
privately self-conscious, they actually had more problems when they had the close network of friends. And what they speculate is that if you put two ruminating adolescents together where they're really preoccupied with the, the negative thoughts of themselves, that that actually can have a really negative outcome. Wow. It kind of reminds me of the research that says that um, mood is um, contagious. 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 Yes. yes. And even weight and levels of physical activity and all of this. Yeah, stuff. absolutely. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, like it's also related, like if you have a lot of friends around you and you really care, you're going to be also in the public realm, be thinking more about, oh, what do they think of me and how did I push them away. And you're, you're likely to be really sensitive to rejection. But if you had that, that good friend who kind of sticks with you and ruminates in a negative way, so just something to think about. Now, of course, in general, we want kids to have deep social networks, but it's just a, it was just an interesting little twist. Well, so just to break that apart a little bit more, cause that, I, that's, there's some real nuggets in there. Yeah. Right. Um, so that, so I mean, I might be repeating, but it's, it's worth repeating that the, first of all, that there's, sounds like that there's a curve mm -hmm. and that the younger and the older are less susceptible. I'm saying this back, right? But to that, the public, yes. To the public. Or to both, but yes. Yeah, because I think they, they run together a little bit. They run together, but the, it's interesting. And, and yet, and they, having a high amount of self-consciousness in adolescence is, is, is a really normative thing if it's around the public, and they're going to have a little bit higher with the private, but if it's super high with the private, then that kind of can lead to, that's where to those things like depression. Yes. And what's interesting is like, that's often what activates me is I'm assuming where I would make a mistake with an adolescent, you know, there's many of them in, in our house. So, um, <laughs> is, is I would want to intervene as yes. a good mom um, oh, nobody's looking at you. I mean, all the exact things that I shouldn't necessarily, you know, that I should know better. But the, my motivation to intervene is because I really am trying to give them that internal state, right? That mm -hmm. like, you're going to, you're okay, no matter what. And everybody is just more thinking about themselves than you. And um, even so, so what if they're looking at you and your hair, you haven't taken a shower or what have you, like, that's okay. You're still okay. Um, but that it's exactly that fear of that there is an internal state that's not, doesn't feel okay, that motivates me to do the action of doing something about that, that actually could be a mistake. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're worried that if they're having this outside fear of people looking at them, that you right. think something's going there's a on. There's self-esteem issue. And there's it a, isn't. Right. Exactly. And that's so right. we might then hit it too hard and too much rather than normalize it. And that actually can lead them to think more about the internal negative thoughts. And they might not be there at all. And that in our talking to them about it and pointing them out and say, you're okay, it actually can add the, their ability to think about that. Am I okay? Is you know, So what you're saying is that if we kind of miscue on that, as well as friends can do that for one another, we can actually increase a child's likelihood to ruminate about their insides. Are they okay? Right. Even adding insult to injury, right? That like, I already feel self-conscious going out into public. And now I feel self-conscious that I'm self-conscious because exactly. <laughs> my mother is saying I'm making too big of a deal of this, but I can't not. So that's something else wrong with me to think about. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I think the idea I've also 
parents sometimes get worried, for instance, if they don't, if their child has a best friend and you can really feel that they do stir each other up in this rumination thing, it is something to talk about, right? Like it isn't, we want friends, friends, very good, no message otherwise. But if you notice that two friends do tend to kind of get into the depth of things, it is something to get in there and visit with them about, about how to kind of pull them out of the depths of rumination and more into the more active state. Yeah, I think that's great. And I I can't help but think about um, eating disorders in particular. This Mm -hmm. might be a real tangent or it might not be, I don't know, but that like doing group, for example, it's hard sometimes to do. You don't want people competing to be, for example, the skinniest Um, or like where that you begin to amplify. It's exactly the same. You don't want somebody competing for the most depressed or the most and that can that can sort of happen in an adolescent population, especially during that time. And just to so what I'm hearing is that that, that there's a subset where that are more sensitive to the mm-hmm. internal rumination and the mm-hmm. internal self doubt, and those folks are particularly sensitive. Um, and and um, those are the so there's I guess a subset that we would want to care for more, not about their self consciousness in the world but more about their sense of themselves. Exactly. More mm-hmm. of their sense of themselves, which really brings us right back to many things we've talked about around attachment and not that all roads lead, but sort of what is someone's personal narrative and where is self-compassion and most of us in our own heads, it's, it can be probably pretty harsh or pretty negative if we're, don't, if we're not watching it. But it makes me think about securely attached kids and insecurely attached kids. I don't know if there's any correlation, but it just really makes me think about the um, the narrative, like what's uh, an autobiographical narrative. Yeah. And also the parent's attunement to the kid's state. I mean, you know, if you're paying attention, you know the difference between the public sort of everybody's looking at me that is real normal for teenagers and I have a kid who sits alone in a room and worries all the time and thinks she's, right. you know, not a good person or. That's right. Let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor. For those listeners out there that are therapists, most of us want to spend our time with our clients and not with the tedious paperwork and billing, scheduling, etc. Theranest provides practice management software that can really help and has helped thousands of therapists out there better manage and grow their practices. Now they've set up a special offer just for our listeners. You can try Theranest for free and then receive 20% off your first three months if you sign up at theranest.com slash therapist uncensored or go to our website and you can click on it from there. Thanks. So Anne, what should parents do, given the information that you've talked about? I think what it strikes me, we, we've just been talking about sort of the what, what to do if you see sort of two kids ruminating together. But the other thing is, is like, I think helping kids know that what's going on and how their body's changing, that their brain's changing, and to help them understand it and go, of course, you know, like it, from a really loving place, I really sort of suggest when they're going, I don't want to go, I don't want to go, that just like you were saying, Patty, not from a shaming place, what the hell are you thinking? You're fine. To not try to convince them. It's kind of like if somebody's really afraid and they're standing on the Grand Canyon, you don't come up and say, there's no reason to be afraid because that doesn't help. So what I would say you start with, I totally get it. It's so hard to, you know, you, you're meant, you don't even have to say it. So I get it. If you don't want to go in, it's fine. Like give them some passes 
instead of always pushing them, giving them a little passes, getting them some leeway. Also, then maybe giving them a little education, not every time, but you know, some little education. You know what? Of course you feel that way. That makes a lot of sense. And I think what goes with that is the fear of being rejected because you're assuming everybody's watching and they see everything negative that you did and the way that your pimple is and the the mean thing you said. And so helping them go, I bet, you know, like to be able to normalize it, I totally understand it feels like everybody's seeing that. I totally get it. But I bet nobody's really going to notice it. Well, you know, Ann, I, I'm, it reminds me of some advice you gave on another podcast about um, talking about your own experience when you yes. were a teenager and sort of finding a way to join them in that embarrassment, you know, yes. with a story from your own teenage years. That, that exactly kind of relate to that and like never make, I, as much as you can, don't make fun of them about it. Just connect with them and know that it'll start shifting. Yeah, I think that's all really, really good. So you don't make them go to the grocery store or to the, um, yeah. CBS, if you can help it. Or right? you can say, all right, go take a shower first. Right. Not a problem. Exactly. And that, but I think it is, you kind of, and to remind them, you know, of course, your friends are going to love you either way. Yeah. Like you can assert that you're such an awesome kid. You know, I get it. And you know, your, your friends are going to love you either way and it's going to be all right. But I get that it's really hard. I mean, literally just being able to say, but I get it's hard can make all the difference. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. When I was little orphan Annie, um, in that moment in time, it was actually, it took forever, I think. But I just remember one particular moment where some people were picking me up, um, some older kids with, you know, the older siblings. And so it was even worse than usual because it was a group of teenagers. And um, at, so I'm imagining like what would have been great would have been if somebody would have been able to sit with me and say, like, wow, that didn't turn out like you were expecting, you know? Oh, yeah. and that must be so hard. And that, this must yes. be so hard. What can we do? Um, what sh- you know, what can we do about this uh, to make you feel mm-hmm. more comfortable? And and validate and kind of grow instead of like, that's ridiculous, go. Because um, it was, I was ill. Like, I just so did not want to go get in that car. Oh, and that. so I was thinking like that, like that would have been much more of like, not, oh, it looks great. Because it looked awful. Yeah, like validate, like this. Validate, like that, and and you don't have to say you hate it. You could just say that really didn't turn out the way we were thinking. Did it? Like, wow. I mean, I I didn't think it would have been funny to to joke about it, like how bad it was. Um, (laughs) um, I don't know, but my point being, yeah, to um, to join, to join. I yes, and I actually thought of uh, one other thing that relates to this as a parent. And that is in your awareness, it has to do with you too, because everyone knows too, you get to a place that they're differentiating from you. One of the reasons they're more focused on peers in not you is because they're ready. You notice that they're preoccupied with people seeing them, but not so much you. Right. Right. It's not, they don't care how you see them as much. I mean, some kids do, of course, but they're, it's the peer because that's really evolutionarily healthy. They, they're, they're moving away. So in that, they also become very very self-conscious of you and they can be very embarrassed of you of what you're wearing what you're saying if you're standing too close now you're going to the soccer game good god do you need to go where before it was like you know and so i think one very important thing about this is to remember that this is brain science and so that you don't feel rejected 
you don't get wounded and you're able to take care of yourself in that and be able to know that they love you, they feel connected to you and they need to step away from you and they even need to be embarrassed by you. Right. Because that's going to help them go in the world. And that's hard. Nobody, when it first happens and you're, I'll never forget it when you're, you're, you're perfectly adoring child all of a sudden goes, oh, good God, did you really say that? Are you and hugging me in front of my friends? And they're embarrassed of you. It's like, it's so hard not to take it personally, be offended, get defensive. And yet I see it all the time with my daughter. I say, I get it. Like, and, and it becomes sort of humorous between us. So that's another idea. So thank you for listening. We hope you'll go to our website, therapistuncensored.com and sign up for our newsletter. And you can also, while you're there, put a question in for us to read on the air and answer on the air. Hi, welcome to Ask a Therapist. Today's question is from Evelyn from Austin, Texas. Evelyn asks, is it difficult, is it hard to sit with clients when they've had experiences that you've never had? That's a great question, Evelyn. The truth is sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's not. And when it is hard, that's part of the therapy process to have these misunderstandings and to make repairs and to move towards more understanding is part of how you build the therapeutic relationship and really how you move towards, towards healing. And sometimes when you start off with a connection or that you have something in common, uh, that's great and it feels really good, but sometimes it, it can create an over-identification and you make assumptions that you have more similarities than you really do. It doesn't necessarily lead to deeper understanding. So um, in every case, they're, even with a similar background or a similar um, experience, there's always differences within that experience. So, you know, if you and the other person are parents or are gay or have been sexually abused or whatever it is, uh, there's always there's always going to be something unique and different about the client's experience that is uh, their journey to come to understand and come to know. Yeah, and part of it is it's really wonderful, the differences. I mean, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's wonderful. And yeah, the, sometimes it's the best part. Yeah, sometimes it's the best part. Like I have, I, you hear people's experiences that are so vastly different than yours, and I just feel like you get this wealth of... Um, insight into so many different worlds. I'll tell you the truth. I love that. That's one of the perks about being a therapist. And then the other process is in not knowing, it really invites you to get go, go deeper with them and to ask and to explore and to be more curious. And it can be some of the most healing thing to have somebody be really deeply curious about your process. And I think the last thing is when it is hard, like you mentioned, Sue, is that when we have cultural differences that you really can't understand, for example, that would be one. And and when that happens, we really do need to reach out and we do consultation and research because we can't assume that we really understand someone's, for example, different cultural experience. So thank you very much for the question, Evelyn. And please, listeners, keep submitting uh, ideas, topic ideas and questions. Some of them have been so good and we noticed that some of them cluster and we want to give a quick teaser that many of them were about uh, relationships with therapists, the love and the hurt that can come with deep relationships with therapists. So we're going to, we are in the process of creating an entire episode from ideas that you all have submitted. So thank you very much and keep them coming.
Appreciate you listening. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly, Hadi Alwell, and Sue Marriott. Becky Mendeville edits this podcast and provides technical support. You've been listening to Therapist Uncensored. Since you're still with us, we hope you found it valuable. And if so, and you haven't already, why don't you join our Facebook community? You'll get a lot of information coming your direction that way. If you really don't want to miss anything, go to our website, therapistuncensored.com, and sign up for our email list. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast player. Take care.